Chapter 3. Meanwhile, down in hell, November 12, 2016, the day after the election, a great celebration was taking place in hell, the likes of which hadn't been seen since the day Bill Clinton used his cigar as a sex toy. Three cheers for Trump. We did it. An elite group of strategists stood around a long table filled with the devil's angels, or dangels, as they like to call themselves. They were reliving the past 12 months, a play-by-play of their hands-on manipulation. Oh, to think Trump's run started as a publicity stunt and a ride down an escalator. Who was in charge of convincing him to actually follow through with it? That was Richmond's unit. They oversaw Steve Bannon. Richmond Whig was an early GOP conspiracy theorist. In the 1800s, Richmond Whig accused Democratic vice presidential candidate Richard M. Johnson of wanting to force Washington society to accept his two daughters, who were the product of his relationship with an enslaved African-American woman. According to Richmond Whig, Johnson's, quote, depraved taste threatened to destroy the racial barrier that kept African-Americans in a subordinate position and endangered, quote, the purity of our maiden and the chaste dignity of our matrons. Van Buren and Johnson won in 1836, but Johnson's family circumstances continued to plague his political career and harmed Van Buren's standing with some Southern voters in 1840. Goblets were raised high for Team Whig. And who persuaded Comey to cast doubt on Hillary's emails mere days before the election? Boss Tweed raised his hand now, accepting credit. Boss, 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 his friends chanted. Not all people in hell were Republicans, fascists, or Nazis. Democrats had representation, too. Boss Tweed, a New Yorker, was elected to the House of Representatives in 1852 as a Democrat and then later to the Senate. He was convicted in 1873 for a corruption ring that stole the equivalent of $1 billion in today's dollars. He was promptly sent to jail, then escaped, then fled to Spain. Evil comes in every shape, left, right, rich, poor, black, white. As Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam once wrote, I don't know if there's right or wrong, but I'm sure there's good and bad. People in hell weren't here simply because they lowered taxes, or raised taxes for that matter. Things like lying, cheating, adultery, stealing used to get a one-way ticket down here. Lately, though, the goalposts have been conveniently moved. And we all know who we have to thank for orchestrating the Russian efforts. A man who needs no introductions. All eyes turn to Stalin now. Russians on Facebook, Russians in Trump Tower, Russians in the NRA. A group now rushed over to Stalin, slapping him on the back, pouring beer on his head and ruffling his lustrous mop of hair. The scene was akin to a locker room after the championship game. Yes, things were downright jubilant here in hell. Indeed, there's plenty of praise to go around. Flynn, Manafort, Papadopoulos, Gates, Cohen, Stone, Assange. Too many to name them all. 
Don't forget David Pecker. Someone yelled from the crowd, Ah, yes, good one, said the lead angel of hell, paying his respects. Those bastards in heaven almost had us with that Hollywood tape, which featured the future president of the United States bragging about grabbing women by the you-know-what. David Pecker was the owner of the National Enquirer, he had purchased the rights to the stories of Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal to make sure they never saw the light of day. One can only wonder if these salacious stories were the last impression voters had of Trump before heading into the booths. In Super Bowl 42, the Giants had the infamous helmet catch. With only 1 minute and 15 seconds remaining in the game, Eli scrambled around the pocket, escaped the grasp of several Patriots linemen, and hurled up a 40-yard prayer. An unknown receiver, David Tyree, caught it with one hand while pinning it to his helmet as pro bowler safety Rodney Harrison swiped to dislodge it. What if this single play had run through a simulator 100 times? How many times does he catch it? Once? So many things needed to fall into place perfectly. Yes, yes, we all look forward to David's company very soon, he said of David Pecker, motioning to a chair at the table displaying an engraved placard with his name. It was a team effort. We even got some unexpected help from the Democrats themselves. And Debbie Wasserman Schultz, tepid applause, followed that comment. It was hard to tell if their lackluster enthusiasm was because she was a Democrat or a woman. There were women in hell. There was even a woman member of this executive group. For example, Elizabeth Bathory, a Hungarian noblewoman from the 16th century, aptly named the Blood Countess. But for whatever reason, women's moral compass had always been dialed a little more north and south back among the living. Without her work for the DNC and pushing Hillary over the top, particularly in the southern states where Hillary swept all of them during Super Tuesday, we may have had to contend with Bernie Sanders. We really pulled together, guys. Our backs were against the wall on this one. To victory! Fair and square! Ha ha ha! Laughter broke out. But there was one danger, however, who was not overjoyed. In fact, he had a look of concern on his face. It was rather typical behavior of this danger. He was different. He possessed superior intellect. At times in his life, he even demonstrated a capacity for overall goodness. Unfortunately, his ambition, combined with his unwavering conviction, became his ultimate undoing. He was none other than Ted Kaczynski. We all know him as the famed Unabomber who terrorized the nation through a bombing campaign that lasted 17 years. But what you may not remember about Ted was that, A, he was a genius who skipped the 6th and 11th grade and went to Harvard at the ripe age of 16 before he even had his driver's license. And B, Ted wrote a manifesto that in part was commended by many academics. It was titled Industrial Society and Its Future in which he argued that his bombings were extreme but necessary to attract attention to the erosion of human freedom and dignity by modern technologies that required large-scale organization. 
Ted wanted to save humanity. He was convinced it was choking itself to death. He sent a letter to the New York Times in 1995 stating he would end the bombing campaign if they published his manifesto. It was that letter that ultimately resulted in his capture. His brother recognized the content and style of the letter and alerted authorities. Ted, come join the celebration. We won! Kaczynski, like many other gifted intellects, was socially awkward. He was bullied in seventh grade simply because he was younger and smaller than everyone else. One of his sweetmates at Harvard recalled that Ted avoided contact with others and would just rush through the suite, go into his room, and slam the door. But it wasn't just social awkwardness that ate at Ted today. He had been studying the rich data that was flowing post-election. Ted was a mathematician. He was a professor for a while at UC Berkeley until he suddenly quit to live off the grid in Montana. In 1996, the vice chairman at Berkeley, Calvin C. Moore, said that given Kaczynski's impressive dissertation and publications, he could have advanced up the ranks and been a senior member of the faculty someday. And something in the data from the election did not sit well with Ted. The numbers are not in our favor, he mumbled. What are you talking about, Ted? We won! Today, maybe, barely, he said. Not tomorrow, though. Ted knew they had won the battle, but the tides of the war were still very much against them. What do you mean, Ted? The Dangels weren't keen on another one of Ted's buzzkills, especially during their greatest triumph since McCarthyism. But they also knew better than to ignore Ted. He may have paled in comparison to their sinister ruthlessness and deceit during their time on Earth, but Ted was arguably more dangerous, given his intellect. We lost the popular vote. Again, the Supreme Court will almost certainly overturn redistricting and gerrymandering. And if the Electoral College goes away someday, God help us. They gasped. Sorry. Slip of the tongue, Ted said, forgetting himself momentarily. Look. Our good friend Lindsey Graham said it best, we're not creating enough angry white men to sustain our future. It's simple math, fellas. The group looked confused now. Math was not their thing. Ted rolled his eyes. We need more people, plain and simple, he said. And it gets worse, much worse. This was not what the group wanted to hear. Here are the facts. An audible groan washed through the crowd. Facts was also not their thing. Religious devotion has been on the decline for decades. Those are reliable votes for us. He continued, The fastest population growth in the U.S. is among minorities. The Census Bureau estimated for 2012, 50.4% of American children under the age of one belong to a racial or ethnic minority group. Baby boomers, our most gullible group, are dying off every day, while millennials who grew up in the age of fake news are vastly wiser to facts. They won't be fooled so easily. They grew up on this stuff. They won't forgive us so easily, especially when Democrats are dangling free tuition and debt forgiveness in front of them. Life expectancy of our core followers Angry white men is reversing course. For the first time ever, they are literally dying younger from suicide and drugs. What are you saying, Ted? Someone called out, as if it weren't obvious by now. 
Our little tricks of voter suppression, voter ID laws, census question, all those things are mere band-aids on a gushing wound, he continued. We need a new strategy if we're going to win again in four years and beyond. The room sat quiet, sober. What do you suggest? spoke the leader of the group. Ted closed his eyes. He did have an idea, an idea that was more radical than all the recent GOP conspiracy theories combined. Pizzagate, birtherism, Uranium One, QAnon. I propose we start a new campaign, a new effort, a new age that will sustain our longevity for centuries to come. My strategy is bold, I know, but no ground was ever won without taking risk. He paused for effect. I want to turn lifelong Democrats red. A hush fell across the group. Many held their breath in anticipation for what came next. And I want to strike at the very heart of their enclave. By the year 2020, I want to turn San Francisco conservative. Coming from anyone else, the Dangels would have burst out laughing. But it was Ted, a man who never laughed or told jokes, ever, not once. He was serious, and they were right not to doubt him. If we can turn San Francisco red, the rest of the cities were followed. We've seen it time and again. Gay marriage, health care, clean energy, privacy, innovation. San Francisco leads, the others follow. If we can flip San Francisco, it will catch on across the country. But how? They're just human, flawed like the rest of them. We can use the same recruitment tactics that have worked for ages. We tap into their genetic code. Basic motivators like fear, resentment, tribalism, it's growing there too. I can see it. And we can use it to our advantage. The trick will be to find the right person, the one who can carry out our plan, someone who is vulnerable, someone who is angry, someone who is on the verge of breaking. All eyes now turn to the table in front of them. It morphed from something solid into a hazy lens that showed everyday people going about their business on the busy streets of San Francisco. They scoured the mobs, each in search of that one special subject who could fulfill Ted's prophecy. Chapter 4. Anger I avoided news and social media for a solid four weeks. It was very healthy. I should have kept it up, indefinitely. No sooner did I sneak a peek at the news, however, did the second stage of grief set in. It spilled out in a torrent, having been pent up for weeks, needing release. I met a friend for coffee, Wade Riley, from New York. We ordered our coffees from the barista, a skinny guy with painted fingernails and a southern accent. Transgender, very friendly, probably a refugee from Kentucky or Tennessee, perhaps. So, Wade said. So, I replied. We stared at each other. Where to begin? The worst part is, I started my purge on a morning that felt more like counseling than friendship. I had no idea there were this many shitty people, this many awful neighbors. That's a little harsh, he cautioned. 
I listened to John Stewart the other night. The point he was making was Trump voters are not a monolith. They're not all racist. Many were just desperate for change. Some thought 45 was a good businessman. Others have been waiting their entire lives to overturn Roe versus Wade. And Justice Scalia dying just compelled them. And some, well, some just didn't like Hillary. I wasn't about to excuse them that easily. I'm sorry to break it to them, but the government can't change people's lives. J.D. Vance just wrote this in Hillbilly Elegy. The best it can do, he said, is put its thumb on the scales a bit. That's all. Well, they've reached a point in their lives where they were willing to make a deal with the devil. That should tell you something about their predicament. You know what? It doesn't matter, I said, trying hard to make myself feel better. I bet you, if I had fallen asleep like Rip Van Winkle on November 10th, 2016, the day before the election, and then magically awoke after four years in 2020, I bet I could step outside and I wouldn't be able to tell you which candidate won. It just doesn't impact us. That's a little selfish, don't you think? It's the truth. I didn't say it was pleasant. And what about all the people on the fringes? The ones who were hurt most by GOP legislation, Wade said. Our conversation was heating up. This country just sent a clear message. It's no longer about us. It's about me. Those are the new rules. Oh, really? Wade said. Absolutely. It's as clear as day, I said, starting my case. Let's take gay marriage. Republicans are against it until it happens to them and they give birth to a child among the 10% who are gay. Then, poof, they're magically for gay marriage. Why? Because it finally happened to them, not someone else, them. Take gun rights. Country music stars are all against gun control until they're the ones getting shot out from a Mandalay Bay balcony. Then and only then do they turn tail in support of strict gun measures the very next day. Why? Because once again, it happened to them. Shall I go on? Well, you're on a roll. Wade said indifferently, universal health care is socialism until you're the unlucky one with cancer and now you're saddled with debt. Now all of a sudden Obamacare doesn't seem so bad. Abortion. Take the real life cases of Tim Murphy, Elliot Brody, Scott Lloyd and countless other GOP pro-lifers just like them, all of whom have had their mistresses have abortions. You guessed it because it happened to them. Are you seeing a pattern yet? Republicans love drilling for natural resources until it poisons their water. Republicans are against immigration reform until agriculture, construction, and service industries need workers. Some GOPers are even against FEMA. Ted Cruz voted against FEMA when Hurricane Sandy hit New Jersey. But, oh, guess who had his hand out when Harvey hit Texas? Why? Hypocrisy, answered Wade. No, no, it's worse than hypocrisy. It's a complete lack of empathy. We sipped our coffee as the realization sunk in. Wade broke the silence. Many of the people who voted for 45, their, their lives, their towns, their kids' lives, their futures are not looking awfully bright. 
Well, that's not my fault, I interrupted. Maybe not, but how is your empathy these days? I'm struggling with it at the moment. The Midwest has been in decline for decades. The term Rust Belt itself was coined back in the 70s. 50 years of decline. You can't expect areas with this level of dysfunction to operate on a purely rational plane, politically speaking. I'm from Ohio, Wade. You don't have to lecture me, I said too loudly for a public space. We got looks from other tables. Was my anger rooted in my condemnation of my birth state for voting for 45? Or was I desperate to save my home from further decline? You and I both know manufacturing isn't coming back, Wade, ever. And it's not China's fault. It's automation. Coal isn't coming back. Amazon is making certain small businesses never come back either. AI is already replacing radiologists because computers can find cancer much better than the human eye. Next, it's going to be retail, then trucking, I said. Meanwhile, I'm trying to support policies that share the overall success of our country among us all. And do you think they like us for that? No. No. No, they don't. I paused to reload. Wade grabbed the second coffee. Me, more ammo. Half of them don't even understand basic facts. Ah, now the real San Francisco elitist comes out, Wade said, looking down your nose, always thinking you're better, he said, only half joking. I am better, I said, having thought this through already, and I can prove it. This should be good. To start, let me state this fact. I am an idiot. Well, you got that right. I am an idiot at a great many things. For example, I am an idiot when it comes to basic car maintenance. I once tried to change my oil by draining it into a spaghetti jar. I can't do simple repairs on my bike. I cannot hammer a nail straight to save my life. I can't adjust the floating bulb thingy in the toilet. For all these things and many more, I will admit here and now, I am an idiot. But here's where I'm not an idiot. I can tell a fraud when I see one. I have critical thinking skills that help me reveal fact from fiction. As recent as 2016, only 48% of Americans believed Obama was born in America. And that's just one fact. If we layered on top of that things like climate change, death panels, caravans funded by Soros, or paid actors at Sandy Hook and Parkland protests, you'd find there are a great many uninformed GOP voters. I love the uneducated, Wade said, parroting 45. Hey, there is nothing wrong with having skills and knowledge that are not academically based. Nothing at all, I said. I have been angry, but I was trying to remain objectivity. Einstein said, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life thinking it's stupid. There are many things that voters of 45 can do better than me. Things that are important and things that require great skill. Things that I am grateful they can do very well. But when it comes to seeing through the lies and deceit of social media, TV hucksters, and straight-up con artists, it's just a fact. 
one I can quantifiably prove by asking their voter block a few basic questions, that they do not know facts. And their ignorance in the realm of politics, economics, and the environment is threatening our future. You sound resentful, Wade said. It's contagious, I ripped off. Let me put it another way. Do you know how Christians feel about God, I asked. I have an idea, yeah. Well, that's how I feel about facts and rationality and science. Truth, I emphasized for dramatics, truth is sacred to me. Truth is my God and it's under attack. Wade could hear the anger bubbling in my voice. He sniggered, realizing the irony. You know, you sound a lot like the people you despise. Different words, same condemnation. Wade was trying to pull me back. For those who have ever witnessed destructive behavior in a loved one, the warning signs burn so clear and bright. Not to me, though. I was blind to the disease eating my soul. To me, I was just the resistance, fighting for good. But there's a fine line between destructive and constructive behavior when passion and conviction lead us down a dark path. I did need help. I wasn't ready to receive it yet, though. It wasn't my time. I needed to fall much, much further. Wade looked at me from across the table. Was his expression concern, pity? You know, AA has a saying about resentment. They say it's a poison you drink in hopes of killing your enemy. I looked away, sipped my latte without uttering another word.